So the year is 1996, Eric. I'm just barely out of high school at that point in time. And there was a movie called The Ghost in the Darkness. And Michael Douglas and Val Kilmer. Young Val Kilmer. Which I was a big Val Kilmer fan back in the days. And of course, at that point in time, he was, that was sort of the height of Val Kilmer's fame. And oh, yeah. He 90s. hadn't got into the Batman and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It would have been Batman not too long after that. Yeah. And then, of course, the Tombstone era. But I remember watching that movie with my parents, and it was a really good movie. Uh, you know, it, and it's the story of a pair of lions attacking and killing people in, in Africa. Two male lions. Two male too. lions during, you know, the, the late 1890s. And it was just a fascinating story, like to me. And then I found out sometime later that that was all based on a true story. Yes, absolutely. And the true story is just as fascinating in the movie, if not more. And so tonight we're going to talk about the Savo Man Eaters. And we're going to talk about what happened. And we're going to talk about why. And, and this includes science that still, they still are researching what happened to this day. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Well, as of 2022, the stats on what is the deadliest African killers are as follows. Hippos, hippopotamuses, kill approximately 500 annually. And people are surprised by that, but I've actually saw an interview with a guy who was attacked. He said he was up to his waist in this hippo before he realized what was going on. These things just like lurk under the water like a giant marshmallow well, crocodile. And apparently they're spiteful. Like they sink boats oh, on yeah. purpose. Yes. Yes. They're <laughs> mean. They're mean. Well, then uh, this one shocked me a bit. Tide are elephants kill also 500 annually. Okay. And. I actually saw a show one time on Discovery about a guy getting attacked by an elephant. That is brutal. Oh, those tusks. That video. And well, their giant feet. I was going to say, they, they didn't, it didn't tusk him at all. It just stomped him repeatedly and then grabbed him with its trunk and threw him around. And, and they are extremely protective of their young. And they say that's where a lot of it, you know, a lot of it probably stemmed from, of course, the ivory tusk, you know, hunts and killing. But like, if you get around a young one, the entire group of elephants will attack you. Well, and, and elephants are a fairly intelligent species. I think they, they tend to remember mm. when people have done them wrong. Well, then thirdly is our cuddly little kitty cats that we're talking about tonight. Uh, lions kill half as much, only 250 annually. But they make a much better story. But they make a great story. And I will say... That just in the past three years, that number three lion spot, they're moving up in the ranks because it has tripled in the last three years. And then just for throwing it in, African Cape Buffalo is the number four killer with 200 people killed annually. Is that like Yellowstone where the buffalo kill more people than the grizzly bears? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's I mean, pretty closely related. I, I think the thing with those is you think they're a docile animal. They're just standing there, not doing a whole lot of anything. And Look at the little Tatanka. You walk up. And, <laughs> yeah. You walk up. And, you ever see a video of a, 
American buffalo, like fling a person up in the air. My uh, uncle and aunt used to know some people who raised buffalo here in Missouri. And uh, we went over to their farm and they, they were cautioning the, the people that helped them out on the farm. They had people that rotated through and helped them. And they had to like, they had shields and stuff that sometimes they would go in because when you feed, they all want to come to you. And they said they will hurt you and not even realize it. We like our anecdotes here, our first-hand accounts. When I was about 21 or so, we went on a family vacation to Yellowstone. And, you know, when the animals decide they're going to cross the road, you just let them do it because it's, you know. Pull over, stop, and enjoy the show. Well, we found ourselves sort of in the middle of a buffalo herd at one point. And my mom had a little sedan car. You know, it wasn't real big. It wasn't like a SUV or anything. And something must have spooked the buffaloes. Buffalo, I don't know, whichever the plural would be. And they all kind of took off in one surge, and then one got knocked over. Oh, goodness. Like, he lost his footing somehow and fell towards the car. Luckily, it wasn't close enough to fall onto the car. But when you're looking out a car window, you know, you're sitting down looking out the car window, you're like eye level with these bad boys. Oh, yeah, they're big. They're big. And buffalo carry their head pretty low. So, like, the, the, the shoulders are, like, way over the top of the car. <laughs> and it was frightening. I was like, if that thing had fell on the car, that would have been... I don't know. We'd have been able to drive out of there. Well, with the Savo man eaters, as we had already mentioned there in the preview, there there was a pair of male lions again without manes uh, that seemed to hunt together. Now, there's two things that are very weird, Bill. Well, the one typically males don't hunt; it's females, right? And, and two, not two males together yeah. because they're very no, they're solitary. Yes, two maneless, which we'll get into later as to the reasons why that is. But that does factor very heavily into this. Now, Savo lions are different from your typical savanna lions. When you think of a lion, you're thinking savanna lion. Lion king. You know, yeah, lion king with the big flowing mane and all that. That's what you call a savanna lion. Now, I did not realize there was a difference. I didn't realize there were subspecies or maybe just, you know, where they where they lived to change their physiology. But a Savo lion typically doesn't have a full mane. They'll, they kind of have, they describe it as a mohawk, and I've, I've definitely seen pictures of that. But they just kind of have a mohawk on top of their head and then maybe a little bit of hair, kind of like a, a little like bit mutton chops yeah, almost. Yeah, a little different color. But they maybe, don't but have the full mane that, uh, that you, that you no. think of when you're thinking of a lion. To say they were maneless, well, Savo lions typically are maneless. But I guess under the circumstances, and again, we'll talk about it later, they didn't have manes at all. But again, because of their environment. And so for a person that didn't really know the difference, you could look at some of the pictures and think they were lionesses, female lions, because they didn't have that striking mane. Yeah, and if you want to see pictures of them, apparently the museum in Chicago has the original pelts taxidermized, and yeah, they just look like two female lions if you're not familiar with what a Savo lion would look like. So I'm going to start off here a little bit. I Again, being the historian, I kind of did some of the, the history. But we have Lieutenant Colonel John Henry Patterson. Now, I want to say, Patterson is a man's man. Oh, yeah. When, when you read this story, when you listen to what we talk about, when you think of like that old school, you know, tromping around in the brush, gun in hand, willing to do whatever it takes, Patterson was that guy. Patterson did not mess around. This guy put himself in harm's way multiple times. He was their version, the British version of kind of Captain America, too, yeah. to get stuff done. Yeah. This was, he was the man the of superhero. the time. Now, he first published a book taken from his personal diaries of these events that we're going to be talking about tonight. Obviously, firsthand, he was boots on the ground right there. In 1907. 
Now, when uh, Lieutenant Colonel John Henry Patterson, which we'll just call Patterson from here on out for simplicity. Yeah, that's what I call him in my notes. When he arrived, he was 30 years old when he accepted the job for the, I guess you'd say the British military, but there were several people that were funding the expansion of the railroad connecting it uh, across Africa. The railroad was going to connect Mombasa, Kenya to Lake Victoria and Uganda and eventually to the Indian Ocean. That was the plan. It was sort of bridge the continent, if you will. And this was huge. I mean, this was unheard of. This would have, this would have changed the yeah, world. This was an unprecedented, I, I think I call it an unprecedented railway project at the time. This was a massive undertaking. Again, you know, Africa is a pretty big continent. And you think about when you think Africa, you think deserts and jungles and, and all that. I mean... And and again, you have lions out there. You've got hippos and elephants and and all these these everything wants to kill you. Yeah, this dangerous wildlife. But uh, we're going to say that the kind of the British military was really who he was reporting directly to. Uh, he was hired, as I said, uh, he was a man to get things done, to lead the expedition and ensure the success of the building of that first railroad across Africa, as Bill was stating. Now, at this young age of only thirty, he already had more awards, bars, and stripes than men twice his age. I mean, he was, he was above and beyond. He was kind of, like we said, the, the, the superhero. And he arrives in the, uh, the city of Mombasa, March 1st, 1898. Now, when he arrived, I believe construction had already begun of a bridge over the Savo River. Now, again, he was there sort of just to take over the project. He was, again, the man's man. And, you know, he inspired people, right? Like, so he was there to lead it. This bridge was quite an ordeal. That, that I think they had stumbled into way more than they thought they could handle. So that's why they brought him in, yes. Now, he was brought in, like we said, to supervise. Now, this was a huge project. We, we talked about that. Uh, relied on the skills of thousands of imported laborers from India, as well as just a, a large number of locals. And we're going to touch on some things. So let's kind of get up in front of that, too. Because of the, the politics and the, the attitudes of the time, you know, when we talk about the people that were killed, when Patterson even recounts the events, he flat out admits, he's like, oh, I don't count the African workers that were killed. Yeah. So yeah. there there was some some racial stuff back so then. So the numbers are even skewed a little bit. I, I think there was probably a lot more people killed. But yeah, it, it, so they begin construction of this bridge in, in March, and, and it's going to cross over the Savo River in the Savo region of Kenya. Now, when we say Savo, that's spelled T-S-A-V-O. Even from the beginning, if they had only known, Hmm. They might have been aware that this could be a bad idea. The name Savo in the local language means place of slaughter and is named for the massacres that took place when the Maasai people attacked weaker tribes and took no prisoners. Also, they had previously killed about 500 railway workers in 1895 in retaliation for the alleged assault of two Maasai girls. Like, this had already been... It was a tinderbox. This, this area was known to not be safe. Now, the campsite... The, the, the work site consisted of multiple camps spread over an eight-mile area, which they used to house the thousands of workers that were involved, all led by Patterson. And there were already rumors in the area of killer lions when Patterson arrived. Uh, as a matter of fact, just days prior to his arrival, the disappearances and the killings of these particular lions had already started. You had mentioned the native tribes. This was one of the things that uh, the, the Brits had uh, experienced as kind of a hindrance because the the two main native tribes that were there had never ever been enslaved or ruled over they were very independent manipulative sometimes unforgiving as you said they you know, take no prisoners 
Uh, and they did not like the white man coming into their turf. So we have that. I went online and actually found uh, Patterson's diary in the, the book form. And I thought it was worth mentioning as he is writing. Again, he has no idea what he's about to walk into as Bill was kind of setting the stage here. But Patterson writes in his own diary and later in that book, when he arrived, he was taken to have this bridge built by the time the two other ends of the railroad came to connect. So he was working frantically to try to get this bridge ready as literally the railroad, let's say coming from the north and the south, would come together and the bridge would connect. So he already knew he was coming into this. The bridge, from the pictures and stuff at least, to me looked like uh, at least a 30, maybe 50 foot drop over kind of this canyon. No small task. Again, you're in the desert. You have to find the proper rocks to build up the the supporting columns for said bridge and all of this. But now he writes in his diary that, you know, as he, as he leaves the city heading towards this area, how beautiful it was, you know, it was uh, an area full of lush vegetation and fields and all of this, but within 20 miles of the river site where the bridge would, would be built or was already started, the land took on more of an ominous feel to it. He said he just felt it. You could see it. The fields and lush vegetation just stopped. The fertile soil had turned to more of a coarse red sand. The trees, he said at night, almost looked like they were dead with just like large spikes coming up out of the ground with the sunfall behind them. Now, the local tribes believed this area to be cursed. And, you know, they were also, you know, like I mentioned, not also fond of white people coming into their territory. This was actually part of the common belief for many, for many, many years, and some probably still today, that the man-eaters of Savo, these lions, were actually spirits of powerful tribal elders and witch doctors that lashed out at the white people for coming and trying to connect this railway across their area. Some locals also believe they were devils come to earth. Devils come and, to earth. And told Patterson that shooting these beasts would be of no good because they were just, they were spiritual entities. Well, I know they were mentioned as devils because a lot of them in the translation said, you know, the devils drug them out of the tent. The devils took them. When Patterson did arrive at the river site where the bridge, he was met with some 8,000 workers. Part of them were indigenous people. Part of them uh, were brought in. Local laborers, whatever they could find. And he would be overseeing these to ensure they succeeded in their task. He was given the authority by whatever means necessary, give them the tools and materials that they need to get the job done. Now, he did comment that on that first night, he thought that the one piece of beauty that he saw in this kind of desert red sand wasteland was he could see the snowy caps of Mount Kilimanjaro, uh, which he remembers casting a pleasant reflection of the night sky with the moon. And from there, it horribly comes off the rails. Yeah, um... Uh, rumors had already begun to circulate of lions killing people before Patterson even arrived. And then literally just days after Patterson's arrival, the, the disappearances and the killings begin. Now, at first, Patterson was sort of single-minded and focused on this railway project. And he just sort of like, kind okay, of blew everything that's, that's going to happen, right? But now, as the days passed, news of more and more workers disappearing came to him. And then eventually, he was literally just confronted by a first-hand witness who reported that a large, maneless male lion had thrust its head into the tent that he and a fellow worker were sitting in, that it seized the other guy by the throat and dragged him, or dragged him out of the tent, 
and it, it, this was like this was happening and in, in basically like this guy ran up and was like you're not gonna believe what just happened he was probably a little more freaked out than that i would hope but <laughs> so patterson and a companion they set off they're gonna track this animal he's gonna take care of this problem he's gonna nip it in the bud if you will and so they follow the pools of blood and and they find a horrific sight and i'm gonna i'm gonna quote from his book here the ground all around was covered with blood and morsels of flesh and bones but the unfortunate workman's head had been left intact, save for the holes made by the lion's tusks unseizing him, and lay a short distance away from the other remains, the eyes staring wide open with a startled, horrified look in them. The place was considerably cut up, and on closer examination we found the two lions had been there and had probably struggled for possession of the body. It was the most gruesome sight I had ever seen. We collected the remains as well as we could and heaped stones on them, the head with its fixed, terrified stare seeming to watch us all the time, for we did not bury it, but took back to camp for identification before the medical officer. I mean, that's horrible, right? Yeah. So, but this is just the beginning. Over the next nine months, these two male lions stalked the camp, dragging workers from their tents at night and devouring them. The natives, of course, took to calling them the Ghost and the Darkness. Ghosts of the Darkness movie. Yeah, hence the name of the movie. They kind of attacked, and then there was an interval of several months where the attacks kind of dropped off. But then they started again in the dead of night, when the two lions broke through a fence and grabbed a worker. Now, despite gunfire and men wielding torches, the lions dragged the man out of the camp and ate him just about 30 yards from the fence that they burst through. Now, word started coming in from other nearby settlements of similar lion attacks, and now that the lions had returned, the attacks intensified with almost nightly killings. So crews, of course, you know, these guys got to defend themselves. They don't want to be eaten by lions. No. So they tried to defend themselves as best they can. Uh, they build fires. They build what they call it, like a thorn fence. Yeah, I can't Maybe. remember the term used, but these like- It was a specific big, word. Big thorn yeah. fences out of the brush and yeah, stuff. From, well, they, they had these, what they called whistling thorn trees in the area. And so they were building fences out of the, the branches with these big thorns and on they them. they said some of those walls was like eight foot tall yeah. of these thorns. Yeah, they was, it was, like you said, they were building whatever they could to keep the lions out. Now, they did all of this to protect themselves, unfortunately. Didn't seem to work. Efforts did not work as the way they would have hoped. The lions would actually leap over or crawl through the fences. Yep. And of course, we talked about being maneless. A main lion would have trouble doing that. I mean, think about, you know, crawling through a sticker brush. They'd snag. But these maneless lions that did not have that problem with their luscious flowing locks getting caught in the thorns. <laughs> no Fabio lions here. Yeah. Reference for the 80s for those uh, <laughs> oh, you know, younger folks out there. Now, Patterson, again, early on was kind of dis disbelief, didn't care i hate to use those words but kind of blew off these things one of the things that he thought might have been going on early on was that these workers had he said in his opinion been paid well in advance uh and they had you know maybe a pouch of gold or silver some of them had rubies and gems and you know, i mean let's face it th these these people were there for almost a year on site building this railway bridge you've got bored men with money, they're going to gamble, and there was some fights, let's face it, and there were others that wanted to trade their gold and silver for gemstones because, let's face it, a gemstone could hold a lot more value and be easier hidden, much lighter weight. If you've learned anything from playing Dungeons & Dragons, Absolutely. you can reach your gold to gems are easier to carry. Yes. So he even dismissed some of this as like, how do we know this is not the workers literally getting into skirmishes and killing off other workers. Let's face it, we're in the middle of the desert. We could dispose of the bodies relatively easy. So he kind of blew that off or used that as an explanation 
when he was writing back to to the Brits who he had to send reports to. And I had another thing that kind of comes from that. Because of that report, there was a gentleman that was hired. He went by the name of Singh. I believe that was his last name. He was also contracted, not as a laborer, but basically as a keeper of the peace to maybe kind of help with this riffraff. While Patterson hadn't gotten much time to get to know poor Singh because, yeah, Singh got eaten by lions. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Um, But he found him quite honorable and that he knew uh, he was a great warrior, had great skills. He was a member of an ancient group of warriors of the area known as the Jemadar and had even, uh, they had hired him like himself for what he could bring to the table. Defense, uh, he was a peacekeeper, you might kind of say the police of the area. And he thought due to his nature that the workers would not dare squabble with this man because they feared him. Uh, that name, the Jemadar, I guess was, I mean, that was held to very high regard. You, you say that, and, and I know I'm going to reveal a little of my inner nerd, but I believe that was also a faction in Star Trek DS9, the Jemadar. I, so, that does sound very familiar. I, I'm, I, I, You're such I, a geek. Well, I had never heard this before. I wonder if they just literally lifted that, that name, name. Whole, whole cloth. Maybe. And to that point, there was a lot of the workers that believed, you know, what could be a safer spot than to actually stay in Singh's tent with him. So, Well, I mean, if he's the guy that's hired to protect you, let him do his job and I'm here to help you. I, I'm going to guess that didn't work out. That didn't work out so well. So generally, this three, four-person tent had 10 to 12 people, counting Singh, in it every night since he had arrived. Unfortunately, as Bill kind of alluded to, and I spoiled, <laughs> at approximately midnight, one night, a lion comes through the canvas and sounds like just, you know, just slices it, grabs Singh by the, the uh, inner thigh oh. and drags him out. Now, Singh, and I'm I'm picturing this man as I mean, kind of a Persian attire, but muscle bound, kind of like out of the Indiana Jones movies, you know, where he's got the pistol and the sword and all this kind of stuff. Oh, what they, the thuggies, I think is what they call them in that movie. Is that what they call them? That's kind of what I'm envisioning. And from these sketches that I saw, he only yells out at this moment and something to the effect of let go of me, you devil. (laughs) And the other 10, 12 people that are in the camp that were supposed to be feeling safe, see this person like the lion plucked him out of everybody else to prove a point and drag him out in case you're wondering i'm going to give you a little preview if a lion ever grabs me in the middle of the night i'm not going to yell let go of me you devil i'm just going to scream like a like a little girl probably (laughs) for as long as you possibly can as long as the lion lets me (laughs) well it's all it's all up to the lion the men that was there and again there was at least 10 witnesses that night said that Singh was that type of man. I mean, muscle-bound, warrior type, said that they they knew the lion had not killed him for at least 10 minutes because oh, they man. could hear him doing battle, oh. wrestling, punching, fighting, kicking this lion. He just chose not to scream like a little girl and was punching the lion. You could hear the squabble until the lion finally just drug him off beyond ear's distance. That's where Patterson and, and Singh here get to be you know, the very definition of a man. I have, uh, again, I stubbed my toe one time in the middle of the night and didn't see the I've table. I've made up all kinds and, of words when that's happened. <laughs> well, every swear word that I knew came out of my mouth. And, and at certain point, I just figured, well, I'm just going to die. <laughs> so, yeah, I can't imagine a lion grabbing you and you fighting hand to hand. 
And, so, well, you know, spoiler, that's going to happen again tonight. You know, we're going to talk about that again later. Yeah. But this dude, yeah, he fights that lion hand to hand. I mean, think about that. Well, the- I, I don't even like fighting. Like, if, if, if my dog decided to attack me, I'd probably be in trouble. Yeah. And he's not as big as a lion. <laughs> oh, yeah. This lion can easily drag, a, I mean, obviously a full-grown human off with ease, climb trees with it. I mean, you know. But these these workers that were there, this just kind of distilled that in their mind that these weren't normal lions. These were spirits, devils, witch doctors, whatever you want to say, or were sent under a, a spell, possibly. Why else would they take Sing out of the entire pallet that was up for that night. Patterson and the group, obviously they went out, they Singh didn't show up for the meeting. So they went to his tent and they found this. And these men were still cowering in the tent because they just thought he's coming back for more, which one of us is, is going to be next. They followed a three mile trail of blood, fingers, arm pieces. As they noticed, there was two sets of lion tracks. And they also noticed that Singh apparently was alive for over half that distance. So let's say drug a mile and a half where they could see his heel prints were still digging into the ground. They could see what they thought was possibly knee drags or elbow drags where he was still resisting to the point where they finally found the remains of Singh at a three mile trail at the end. It was horrible. The two lions had, as Bill had alluded to in another instance, like fought and ripped him from limb to limb, fighting over the scraps. However, propped his torso and his head like up against a rock, like literally as if they were posing him. They had licked away the skin on his face because if those of you who have cats, you know their tongues are kind of sandpapery. Imagine that dialed up on a lion. I can't stand when a cat licks me. And these lions apparently would lick the soft tissue face and that kind of stuff to get to the muscle tissue. They said at a glimpse, as they come up over the kind of a little plateau, it looked like Singh was smiling because they had Uh removed his cheeks and they were rosy red exposing the muscle. That's awful. These things are demented. These are horrible. So we've talked about a couple of situations where both lions had obviously been involved. Patterson noted that early in the killing spree, typically it was just one lion would sneak in and grab a victim. As these attacks proceeded, as the lions got braver, if you will, uh, they would both come in and they would each seize a victim sometimes. Let me just lay this out for you. This is this is chilling. You, you can put yourself in the shoes of these workers. You know, it's the late 1800s. We don't have the technology we have today. A lot of these guys are probably sitting there by firelight, candles, lanterns, what have you. Literally sticks and stones a lot of times. In the dead of night, you know, you're unnerved by the roaring of lions in the distance. But it's when the roar stops that the real terror sets in. Because that's that's when you know you're being stalked. That cat has, he, he doesn't want you to know he's there anymore. When those roars would stop, then you'd start to hear the shouts in the camp. Beware, brothers, the devil is coming. And then later in the night, you would hear shrieks of terror and pain. And, and yet another one of the, the workers, the laborers, wouldn't make it through the night. And Patterson kind of alludes that on one night, he is perched up in a kind of like a little treehouse stand that they built. Him and his, what he calls the boy, his, his servant. They were up in this tree and he, you know, he was armed with a three oh three and a double barrel gun. He, he spoke that the lions were alert, like playing with them, alerting the, the camp. And you could hear these roars and their 
heavy breathing. And it just added, you know, to that darkness effect that, oh no, they're coming. But they announced themselves. Other nights, absolutely no sound whatsoever. Just came in, brutally mauled, killed, and, and took them away. Now, again, imagine when we say camp, 8,000 people in tents. This was not a small camp. Well, and scattered over an eight-mile area. Eight-mile area. And th- again, they had built up these walls of thorns and stuff around it. Now, these lions, they thought, well, they, they won't dare come into the camp. And the longer people are here, you would think the, the smells of humans and you know the fires would help keep them at bay. That was not the case at all. It was like you know sugar attracting them even more. The lions got where they would, their, their soft pads of their feet on the red sand, they said they could move so stealthily that you could not tell where they were at. But at morning, sunrise, they could see these tracks. They had walked all through this camp, just like strategically picking their targets. They, could, they passed hundreds and hundreds of possible targets, but for whatever reason, chose just certain ones. Yeah, Patterson himself uh, described one experience where the lions had drug off a victim uh, from the railroad station near his particular camp. I'm going to quote again from his book. I could plainly hear them crunching the bones, and the sound of their dreadful purring filled the air and rang in my ears for days afterward. The terrible thing was to feel so helpless. It was useless to attempt to go out, as of course the poor fellow was already dead, and in addition it was so pitch dark as to make it impossible to see anything. I mean, just imagine. Like, you know this is happening, and there's nothing you there's can do about nothing it most you can of the do. You're absolutely helpless. And Patterson and a few men did have guns, and they tried everything. They staked out live goats one night, and they hoped that the bleeding of the goats would, you know, call in the lions. They didn't come for the goats. They wanted human flesh. He even attempted to take down portions of this thorn wall to make a weakness, thinking the lions would come through that area. And he and some of his men literally lay on the ground covered in brush so that they could shoot them. Guess what? The lions didn't choose to go through there. They jumped the eight-foot thorn fences and made their way through. Well, and again, like you said, this this all helped instill in the locals that these these weren't normal lions. These were demons. I mean, th- there were there was talk at the time that these lions weren't killing for food. They were killing for sport. They were killing just to kill. Wildlife, animals, they don't typically... They don't kill for fun, generally. Yeah, they don't kill just to kill. They do kill to eat. And and again, we'll get into it later. These these lions were killing to eat, but there was... The Not all the time. But the experience in general was just that these, these lions weren't normal. Yeah. Yeah, there were some of the victims that they may have chewed on and mauled, but just left. And, and I think in those cases, though, if you think about it, I mean, they were around this camp. And when a guy got drug off, a lot of times people would run out and try to... Spooked him off. So it's, it's possible that they spooked him in those occasions. After multiple lion attacks, multiple members of their, their group being eaten, you know, these guys, they, they said at one point in time, every member of this crew knew someone who had either been killed or eaten by these lions. And we talked about thousands of people here. So it's... Like when we used to joke about COVID and sooner or later, you know, you're, everyone's going to know everyone's somebody who had know COVID. Someone, yes. But it, in this case, everybody at this campsite knew of a person who had been attacked or killed. And this would be like within a period of the first couple of weeks of Patterson's arrival. Well, or in the early week, days. maybe. Yeah. But by the time this all came to an end, you know, everybody there would have known someone who was attacked or, or eaten. And whether or not that person was killed by the lions or even just, again, if somebody died and they didn't get them buried right away, the lions would come in and take off with the body, basically. 
So after the after dealing with these lion attacks, the workers at a certain point just said, okay, enough is enough. Hundreds of workers fled the site, halting construction of the bridge. Of course, their justification, I can't say I disagree with them. No. They told them, hey, man, we came to Africa to work on the railroad, not feed the lions. <laughs> I don't blame them. Board. So, of course, colonial officials, you know, the British Empire kind of steps in, and they're going to take over. There was even one district officer, a Mr. Whitehead, who showed up, and he eventually himself narrowly escaped being killed by one of the lions after arriving at the Savo train depot one night. His assistant, however, Abdullah, was not quite as lucky. Basically, if not for Abdullah, Whitehead himself would have been killed. Whitehead did not escape unscathed, however. He was uh, viciously clawed and had four you know, claw tears down his back. I mean, he was, he was severely injured. It's probably not of etiquette, but it kind of goes back to that joke that you, you don't have to be the fastest one, just don't be the slowest. You don't have to outrun the bear. Yeah. You just have to outrun your friend. Yes. And that's what Whitehead did. <laughs> <laughs> so, other officials continue to arrive. Uh, again, you're talking this huge amount of money they'd spent, the effort they had put in. They're not going to let this project fail. Literally millions of dollars on the line. More officials arrive, and they bring in reinforcements in the form of about 20 armed Indian infantry to assist in the hunt. And these guys weren't just rank-and-file soldiers. These were like the special forces. The elitists. And, and again, I mean, it kind of doesn't really help. Like, they still aren't able to get these lines. Now, again, to add insult to injury, I'd mentioned that they had to find stone in the desert to build these these columns, these braces for the for the bridge, they actually finally did find proper stone, but it had to be quarried from three miles away. So now we're dividing the group. Well, can you imagine, Bill, your number's drawn. We need you to go three miles off that way. Yeah, you, the strength in numbers. You know, the, they there was a lot of squabbling that, no, I didn't sign up for this. I'm not going out there. But they would have to mine the stone to be brought back in on the railroad basically carts and then basically have construction people working mortars to to set these blocks up and everything so they were being divided it wasn't like they were in some little close niche little tiny area to defend they were spread out patterson had set traps he had tried several times to ambush the lions he he'd like you talked about making the makeshift tree stands he tried tried to tin cans bells strings all kinds of stuff for alarms after many, many unsuccessful attempts, he finally shoots the first lion on December 9th, 1898. Now, remember, this all starts March, April time frame. So, you know, this starts in the spring. You're moving on to December now. You're nine months, ten months? It takes a while. Yeah, it's, a, you know, nine months or so. It reaches Patterson's ear that one of the lions was in the area feeding on a dead donkey. And so Patterson gathers up a bunch of workmen in the camp. He has them grab tin cans, pots, pans, whatever they can to make noise. I want to be that worker. Hey, grab that pot and that can and come with me. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to go hunt lions. So they, they form this big semicircle, which I think if you know much about flushing game, you're going to know where I'm going. Yep. They form this big semicircle and they start advancing through the brush, making noise. Now, Patterson himself, he's gone out ahead of the group because, again, as a man's man, I, I would not go out in the dark at night to put no myself out there way. to be lion food. But he goes out and he positions himself behind an anthill. There in, lies in America, problems there. Well, in America, you think anthill, little half inch or whatever. In the anthills in Africa, oh, they're big, big. So that, that's enough for him to hide behind. And he he waits behind this anthill for one for one of the lions to walk by. He's just he's ready. So he says at one point in time, the lion came within about fifty feet. He can see it. It's there. 
he lines up the shot. He's ready to go. He's going to take it out. Again, he's an experienced hunter. He knows what he's doing. Pulls the trigger. It misfired. Oh. Now, luckily for Patterson, the noise that the workers are making, it distracts the lion. The lion doesn't hear the misfire of the gun, which is a point in his favor. It gives Patterson a chance to take another shot. This is a double barrel. He's only pulled one trigger. So he's got another shot ready to go. It's already in the chamber. He lines up the shot. He takes it. He hits the lion in the back leg. So he does hit the lion. He injures it. Doesn't kill it. Not a death blow. The beast disappears into the wild. And Patterson, though, he, he they just keep coming back, right? So Patterson knows what he's got to do. He just kind of stakes out of place. He figures it's going to be back. Again, he, he's going to stake out. He climbs up a tree. I believe, yeah, he makes a he makes an improvised tree stand. And the lion does return. But that lion is not there to feed on the donkey, which is what Patterson's ready for. He's kind of using that donkey as bait. That lion is looking for Patterson now. And again, that just fuels that, Intelligence. that belief that these lions are not normal lions. But that lion is there for Patterson. Revenge. So Patterson is up in a tree. He's elevated himself. He's, he's kind of overlooking the, the donkey. The lion tracks him now. It's, it's coming the, for The hunter him. becomes the hunted. Now Patterson takes a shot now. He's using a more powerful rifle than he used before. Hits it in the shoulder and through the heart. Oof. The lion runs off. Yeah. This is, these are tough animals. Yeah. The next morning, daylight, he gets down. He finds the lion lying dead, not too far from where his platform was. The first lion measured nine feet, eight inches from nose to tip of tail. And it took eight men to carry it back to camp to show that, like, that hey, men. we had got this. Now, 20 days later, Patterson finds the second lion. 20 days. So you got another, almost another month. It, it bought him some time. So to kill the second lion, Patterson sets up a blind. And this time he's using goats as bait. Again, he goes back to those goats. Now, this lion and, and this, if Patterson's a man's man, this lion is a lion's lion. <laughs> this lion was shot nine times in total to bring it down. Five with the, with the same rifle, three times with a second rifle, and once with a third rifle. Now, again, I, we keep saying these are not normal lions. I, I, would, I would think nine shots would bring down a normal lion, if, especially if they were strategically played. I would think three to four should bring down a normal lion at best. Yeah, and Patterson being an experienced hunter, he knows yeah. where to put those shots. His first shot was fired from atop a scaffolding built above the goats. Again, he raises himself up above. He's got the tree stand, if you will. Two shots from the second rifle hit the lion. Now, as the lion is stalking Patterson and, and, and at the same time trying to kind of get out of there, the lion is, is still being aggressive and cautious all at once, right? It, it, it knows it's injured now. It's still trying to get at Patterson, but it's being careful about it. But it's pissed. When they find the lion the next day, it is wounded kind of in this clearing and it's still angry he's been shot it attempts to charge patterson even with bullets in it and and wounded oh my gosh it's still it charges patterson patterson shoots it three more times severely wounding it but still it's coming severely after Severely wounded this thing was already severely yeah. wounded and it's still coming after him eventually it trees him and his companion <laughs> where patterson finally gets two more shots and that's the other thing. I mean, you put yourself up in the air. You're just buying yourself time. These yeah. lions climb trees. Yeah. Just, I mean, that's. So Patterson fires two more shots from the tree, hitting it once in the head, which finally kills. Imagine that. Again, they said it was gnawing on one of the tree limbs, trying to get to him when that last shot hit. Mm. It was not given up. So both lions are now dead. The ghost in the darkness are no more. The construction crew return, and eventually the bridge is finished in February of 1899. Now, the exact number of people killed in that time frame is not 100% clear, although 
later evidence gives us a rough number. Patterson gave several figures, overall claiming that there were 135 victims. But like I said earlier, Patterson did not count Africans amongst the number of people killed. Now, whether that was, I'm assuming it's for racist reasons. Right. 135 seems to be the, the most common number put yeah, out there. 135 would have been English and Indian. Patterson would eventually go on to leave the railroad business altogether and become a game warden in Kenya. I guess he decided he liked it there and he didn't mind living with lions. He definitely had some experience with the best. At the end of the crisis, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Lord Salisbury, addressed the House of Lords on the subject of the Savo man-eaters. I'm going to quote him here. The whole of the works were put to a stop because a pair of man-eating lions appeared in the locality and conceived a most unfortunate taste for our workmen. At last, the laborers entirely declined to carry on unless they were guarded by iron entrenchments. Of course, it is difficult to work a railway under these conditions, and until we found an enthusiastic sportsman to get rid of these lions, our enterprise was seriously hindered. Enthusiast sportsman. I don't think he knew what he signed up for. So you're talking two lions halted the progress of the British Empire in its tracks. Two animals out in the middle of the desert holding up millions of dollars of investments. The two lions spent 25 years in Patterson's residence as floor rugs. Oh my gosh. After the fact. And their skins were eventually sold to the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. We alluded to that earlier, Mm -hmm. where their stuffed carcasses can still be seen. Uh, They were sold in 1924 for the sum of $5,000. Now, when they arrived at the museum, they were in very poor condition. As you can imagine, they were floor rugs. They were reconstructed, and they are now on permanent display along with their skulls. And in 2001, a review about the causes for man-eating behavior in these lions revealed that the proposed human toll of 100 or more was most likely an exaggeration and that the death toll was probably closer to the 28 to 31 region. I, I will expand on that here in a little bit. Uh, now, this reduced total was based on the review of Colonel Patterson's original journal, but the same study does note that the, the journal only refers to the Indian workers and the British people. As was alluded to. Yep. Patterson himself stated that the casualties were much higher because of that. Well, and again, there was lion kills before he got there, so you know maybe he didn't even have all those numbers before he got there. I'm going to be honest here. Scientific analysis that's way too complicated for me to understand was used to determine that across the nine months of recorded man-eating behavior, the first lion ate the equivalent of 10 and a half people, and the second lion ate just over 24. Now, this is based on all sorts of, I read the article, and my eyes started to glass over at that's a certain point. crazy. How could you tell that? It's, just from it's an old skull. something to do with genetics and, and studying the markers. There's you can determine what a lion ate 100 years ago, apparently, by... Well, good luck when they dig my grave that. up trying to figure out what all I've ate. Oh, you'll be perfectly preserved with all the garbage we eat these yeah, days. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's important to note that this analysis does not differentiate between an entire corpse or just parts of a person. These are whole people. If you want to phrase it this way, and it sounds a little bit morbid, but it's like if you had a stack of sandwiches and you eat half of four sandwiches, you ate two, two sandwiches. sandwiches. They ate this many full people between them, but that could have been, they could very well have killed a hundred or more. True. And when you're out there in the middle of the desert at midnight at dark, does it really matter? You're, you're being killed by lions, whether the lion eats you or is interrupted and run off or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Since, since, you know, the attacks usually caused a a ruckus, you know, the, the lion sometimes got interrupted in feeding. And so they probably didn't eat, you know, the entire victim. I mean, obviously if you found remains, they didn't eat the entire victim. Yeah. There were also many workers over the period that just went missing. Um, Some died in accidents. Some just left out of fear. 
Uh, so, like I Wonder said earlier. how many of those made it. You know, hey, we're done with this. We're taking off yeah. across the desert, probably <laughs> by foot, maybe by a donkey. So, so, like I said earlier, like everybody at the site knew someone who had been attacked or killed by one of the lions. This research cannot disprove whether or not the lions were actually killing for sport or killing just to kill. If they did kill people and didn't eat them, again, that wouldn't be documented. Why did this happen? What are the reasons? Why did the man-eaters become man-eaters? I found some interesting stuff in the history on that. Well, I've got a couple things here. One, there was an outbreak of rinderpest, which is called cattle plague, in 1891 and 1893, which apparently decimated the local buffalo herds, which was the lion's usual prey, and forced them to find alternative food sources. Makes sense. They got to survive. Uh, Going back in history, about 50 to 75 years or more prior to Patterson's arrival, we learned that part of this could stem from slave trade in the region. During the 1800s, the sultans invaded tribes of the area and literally put multiple tribes at war with one another. They would then circle back around and often pick up injured or captured men and march them across the desert towards Mombasa, the port city, uh, where Patterson arrived with, uh, there were several rivers flowing through there and that was a good place there with that being a port city for the slave trade. Now, again, many of these slaves were already injured. They were weak, possibly prisoners of war and, you know, marching across the desert and the heat and those kind of distances. A lot of them didn't make it or they got to the point where the people that were caring for them decided they were no longer worth their investment of time or food and that they would not make it to the final outcome. So what did they do? They left these poor souls. They ditched the bodies. They didn't bother to bury them. They didn't care. They, they pretty much just left them wherever they felt. They left a smorgasbord, and they left a lot of them, they said, alive. But again, these people are weakened. They're malnourished. And the lions would just come up easy prey. Again, you know, a lion is like anything else. They're opportunists. And why would you, especially in the desert heat, try to run down a zebra and ex- you know expend so many calories yeah. when there's this poor sap just laying underneath a thicket tree that's right there for the you know for the pluckins? So they had developed, they think, maybe a taste for human blood back then, and that was something that was passed on. Well, even in addition to that, the Hindus working on the railroad at the time did open air cremations for their deceased, which may or may not have always consumed the body. And so left remains for the lions. And again, if they'd already developed a taste for, you know, deceased people. Yeah. The most likely explanation, after much scientific analysis, was ultimately that tooth problem for these two lions led to this. Now, I had read there was one lion that had a tooth issue. You actually shocked I, me. I found you, both. You dug a little deeper and found both of them. So the first lion was missing three lower incisors and had a broken canine. And at the root of that broken canine was a severe abscess, which can be, which was detected by analyzing the skull that they have on display. And of course, that would have been extremely painful if you've ever had a toothache or, or anything like that, an inflamed abscess, whatever. That, that's very, very painful. The other line had a fractured upper tooth and an exposed root. An exposed root, again, very, very painful. Now, in both cases, these damaged teeth would have made it, I mean, difficult, if not impossible, to grab and hold their regular prey animal for the killing bite. You know, of course, they, they usually grab like a zebra, a wildebeest, a buffalo, whatever, by the neck. And they hold on to the neck in an effort to either break it or to eventually suffocate the animal. There's, there's a lot of struggle. 
and and those are not weak animals, of course. They're very, you know, any herd animal is typically pretty muscular and strong. And let's face it, humans are squishy. Yeah, I mean, that's literally the next line of my note. <laughs> and humans are softer than lion's normal prey. Squishy. With big, fleshy, meaty areas such as the thighs, the arms, the behind, and the stomach area. I mean, lots of areas with lots of meat that are easy to get to. Uh, now, this theory has been disregarded by the public for a couple of reasons. And one of those, at least, is Colonel Patterson said that he damaged the tooth of one of the lions with his rifle when he killed it. That, that could have led to well, that. Well, and he did mention, correct me if I'm wrong, he could hear them crunching the bones and yeah. stuff, you know, so. Now, another possibility is that it was related to weather conditions. Parts of the Savo only have 12 inches of rain a year on average, and lion's manes are related to the amount of rainfall in their area, which we talked about earlier. Of course, like we said, Savo lions have modest manes, a mohawk-like area on the head, hair on the neck and chest, but bare shoulders, not that big, giant, flowing mane that you're used to when you think of lions. In the Serengeti, where they get four times as much rain, male lions have that typical full mane. When the weather's hot, a maned lion would, of course, be less efficient at hunting and would have to skip the hottest times of the day to stay close to water. We're in a freaking parka. Yeah. Which, water was in short supply due to the severe drought in the region. So these two factors combined, and, and they triggered a hormonal change in the lions that limits mane growth to reduce overheating. This is also supported by thermal imaging of lions. Uh, in the Serengeti, maned males have noticeably higher body temperatures than the females, where in the Savo, maneless males have the same body temperature, roughly. So again, I mean, obviously not having that mane keeps you cooler, makes it easier to, to sneak around. Get through thorny bushes and uh, walls. And all that boils down to it made sense for the lions to hunt at night when the temperatures are lower. And... That also happens to be when humans are typically asleep and would be easy prey. Didn't have to run them down. And studies since then have also indicated that the lions ate humans to supplement their food. That the we weren't the, the human beings did not become the only food source. Now lions in the Savo region still present a risk to human beings. Uh, example between 1994 and 1998, there was a time period where lions were sort of regularly attacking cattle and sheep and goats. Six people were attacked. Two people were killed. And that was within Savo East, one of the protected parks. They say outside the parks, attacks are even more common. Uh, as a matter of fact, in June 2002, lions killed a herdsman along the highway to Mombasa. Now, like most nuisance animals, when a lion attacks a person, ultimately it proves fatal for the lion. Uh, the lions are labeled a problem animal. They're either captured or killed, with one animal control officer in Savo reporting shooting 222 lions across Kenya over the span of 12 years. So when they do become dangerous, they take care of that problem. A lot of locals will say they still believe it's older and sickly lions, possibly with tooth problems, that are responsible for most attacks. But, you know, ultimately the lions can be seen as a powerful, powerful symbol. Again, two lions stopped the expansion of the British Empire at the height of its power, quite literally in its tracks at Savo. Now I know tonight's episode was about the man-eaters of Savo, but... The truth of the matter is, there's a newer version. It's almost like it's being reinvented, and this time it's also still in Africa, but in particular, Tanzania. Now, Tanzania is in the eastern region of Africa, which shores up against the Indian Ocean. Uh, its neighbors is Kenya and Uganda. Tanzania boasts now holding one-third of the entire world's lion population. There's been a huge spike in Tanzania of lion attacks since the early 2000s, in particular starting about 2005. These are not just a single lion attacking, but entire prides 
boldly walking into villages many, with many people there in the village, and they just hunt their victims openly without fear. Now, Bill had alluded to, especially in that region of Savo, that if lions become a menace, they're, they're put down pretty quickly or captured, moved. In the area of Tanzania, that's not so well defined because lions are almost a protected species. There's really not been much done towards the check and the balance of the wildlife, as you might expect. That being said, once a man-eater is discovered with some due diligence, proper paperwork, and, you know, some time, uh, one can get the aid of the help of a conservation agent in the area to hunt a particular lion down. But it is not easy for many of the more isolated tribal people, the farmers, that dot the horizons in that area, as many don't have much communication outside their area, much less with city officials, and obviously don't have phones and, and that type of communication. But in the past, man-hunting lions were thought to be you know, more older, weaker, more injured. In Tanzania, in the 2000s, this is not the case. There are mixes of old, adults, and even young. The young lions seem to be teaching their young, the cubs, the art of hunting humans. There's also mixes of sexes, both male and female lions. And if you think male lions are bad, you dare not want to tassel with a lioness, a female lion, for they are much, much worse. Got a couple uh, instances here I'll share with you to kind of explain and help you know, pencil in this. A worker was riding home from work one afternoon with his friends, this typical bicycle, dirt, dirt road, when a male lion emerged from the bush uh, nearby and began chasing the pair on their bicycles. Obviously, they paddled as fast as they could, hearing the lion roaring behind them as if it made chase and was panting. Unfortunately, the friend fell from his bicycle. Now, the lion leapt onto this man and drug him to the edge of the road. The first man really couldn't do anything anything but observe his friend being mauled and eaten right in front of him he took advantage i like your if you ever get attacked by a lion and i'm standing there that's probably all i'm gonna be able to do <laughs> but at least you wouldn't keep pedaling you'd at least stop and watch sure <laughs> sure i'm yeah, not sure how Eric. i feel about that <laughs> <laughs> well he took advantage of this dire situation and took off running closer to home stating later he was so scared he thought he would faint but he did make it home safely. Now, the man who was killed left a wife uh, and six young children, and they have continued to struggle greatly in making ends meet with the loss of their, the man of the family, so to say. Now, Tanzania is that region that since the mid-2000s had noticed this great shift of man-eating lion attacks. Since 2008, over 20 humans have been slain by the man-eaters. They have gotten a taste of the human blood, and quite honestly, they seem to desire it. Now, us clumsy humans, we, we wear shoes. We are clumsy. We're unable to run nearly as fast as their common prey, antelope, zebra, and the likes. So humans are easy to hunt for lions. This has been made apparent with several strikes of lions attacks, not in just one single location, but all across hundreds of thousands of miles of Tanzania. So what I'm stressing is this is not just like one pride or group. This seems to be something that the all the lions in the area are adopting. The lions seem to have no fear. Uh, again, they walk right into the villages, sometimes in daylight, uh, unlike common wildcats who kind of stay away. These giants pull out their victims as they sleep from up atop their roofs, which is often like a thatched roof, even digging through the walls of wooden cabins or 
uh, houses to pluck out their easy prey. Now, another story, and I will probably butcher the name, but Rafji, a story of a man-eater by the name of Asami, was the lion. Now, a young man, Rafaji, in the region of Tanzania, has uh, seen firsthand the horrible attacks of a man-eater in particular. He was inside his family's home one evening in 2003 as the family slept. This one particular man-eater, given the name Asami, broke through the wall of the house. Now, from what I could read and get, this was like a clay, mud, uh, straw-type structure, so it took a little bit of doing. But this lion dug through the wall and, as he watched, drugged his mother out of the house, kicking and screaming. The lion drug her only a few hundred feet from her home and then devoured her alive with the family hearing the scream. Many of the local people still have uh, great supernatural beliefs. They believe the intelligence of these man-eaters, with their seeming knowledge of doors, windows, easy access points to the roof, are actually, again, evil spirits in the form of lions or lions that were put a curse upon to hunt for tribal witch doctors in the area. In a weird twisted manipulation of this belief, this seems to have helped the local tribe people deal with it in their lives. They believe regular lion attacks would be very odd and very rare to be bold. So in their belief, by adopting this evil spirit is what is hunting them down, they feel that as long as they do good, that they should be safe. And so they plug on about their their lives. I, I hope all the best for them, but I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't see works. that working out for him. And I have one more. Uh, a serva and his family are trying to defend their fields from what's called bush pigs. In 2005, another gentleman by the name of a serva, also in the Tanzania area, found he and his family were plagued with a type of bush pig. These are kind of alludes to the feral hog uh, episode that we, uh, uh, that we did here on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. These uh, bush pigs are coming in, ruining their crops, and, and that is all these people have is their crops. The local citizens of the village uh, decided to fight back against these wild pigs, and they drove them away. However little did they know, but apparently lions had come to the area to feed upon these hogs for prey. When the pigs left, the lions remained and changed their minds on what would be on the course of food for the night. The following night, this young man, approximately 22 years old, witnessed his mother, his father, and two nephews being pulled out of their house and killed in the middle of one single evening. The lion seemed to be punishing the family for running the bush pigs off and taking revenge on the humans instead. A serva told the story of that horrific night. He states the lions came through the wall, taking his mother first, devouring her legs up to the waist, and then returned for the father drug him out to uh, witness what they had done to his wife, tore his limbs from his torso, then left him still alive to bleed out, returning once again to the home, this time taking two young nephews. Now, this is multiple lions attacking at the same time, uh, still children in their preteens. When morning light finally came, the lions had left, and Aserva and his brother, the two remaining people alive in the family, uh, ventured out to search the area. It was as if the lions had posed the family together, the father laying against the remains of the mother, and the two younger children had not even been eaten at all. They appeared to be asleep, lying close to the family. However, their lives had been lost long ago when their corpses were cold and stiff. Aserva, his brother, and the remaining family continue to sleep in these thatched huts that they build quickly out in the fields where their crops are. 
He explains they must sleep in the fields to keep the bush pigs away, and they know the lions will be hunting. But if their lives are spared and they're successful, then their children can have food to eat. If they do not sleep in the fields, then all the work that they have done and the generations before them for their crops, all the family's work and toil, is lost for nothing, and they will all go hungry and they will all surely die. So this is a trade-off for them. Now the trouble in Tanzania with the lions is twofold. There's a delicate balance of the government. It is the home to the second largest wild lion game reserve in all of Africa. Tourism is a big portion of the entire region's income, which is made up by controlled lion hunts, which brings in great amounts of money for the area. Now, if you want to sign up for these hunts, you're not allowed to even eat the meat of the lions. You're definitely not allowed to take hides, corpses, teeth, anything back home. It's just more of the bragging rights to say, hey, I hunted and killed a lion. Maybe I'm a little more ethical, but what's what's the point of a hunt where you get nothing out of it? Just to say you did it? Just to say you did it. Get some pictures. Now, if you hunt other things besides lions, there you again, you're not allowed to bring back pelts or taxidermy, but you can eat elephant meat or, you know, whatever, hyena or whatever you might want to hunt. Just with the lions, they don't want you to eat the lion meat. That's that's the one difference with hunting lions over the other stuff that the reserves offer. Like a taboo or something, maybe? I kind of wondered that. Like, oh, these are this, you know, high-ranking, you know, maybe it's a, I don't, I don't know, well, a spiritual maybe, thing. I don't know. Maybe to some of the people, if these lions have eaten humans and then you eat the lion's meat, you know, maybe that's a double taboo. I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, yeah, maybe. Who knows? It just seems like, I don't know. I mean, I'm a practical guy. You hunt to survive. I, I guess there are big game hunters and fine if that's your deal. I don't say, I'm I'm not not sure I agree with it. I but. never saw like a price tag on this, but I'm sure Oh, I, 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 it's pricey. Yeah, I bet they make a fortune. Yeah. So anyhow, we've got that going on in Tanzania in uh, 2005, 2008, even up to 2015, I found references to this. That's crazy. So, are we ready for headlines? I think we are. I wanted to share yet another one of the man-eating lion stories of Tanzania. This one, to me, just kind of had a weird twist to it. So, this is going to be my headliner. This is the one we talked about earlier. It's, It's gruesome. This took place in Tanzania in 2010. It's a very tragic story, uh, but one showing just how devoted one man was who lost a family member but could not gain the legal ability to hunt down the man-eater due to government laws, or so he believed. The man and his wife were out along the roadside moving their flock of goats. Flock of goats? I don't think that's right. We'll say herd of goats. (laughs) When a lion emerged from the roadside and attacked his wife, taking her down. Now the man screamed and tried to drive the lion away, but was unsuccessful before the lion killed his wife right in front of him and again devoured her legs. That seems to be kind of a theme with a lot of these lion attacks. Feet up. To be fair, look at your leg. I mean, there's a lot of meat there. A lot of flesh there. Big fleshy area. You just got a couple of bones holding it all together. It'd be an easy place to start. This poor man is watching the lion maul kill his wife, eat her legs, And he finally does drive it off before the lion could drag off the torso. He did the unthinkable, Bill. Now, obviously, you would think 
he would want to get those remains, do a proper burial, last rites, whatever. But he wanted revenge on the lion, and he wanted that to stop before that lion even came into town and hurt other family members or part of his village. Well, again, once they get a taste for people... They uh, seem to want to come back yeah. for more. And Well, we're easy prey, right? So he picks up the remains of his wife, the torso, taints it with rat poison, and then returns it to the road where the lion had left it. That man is dedicated to his cause. And he waits. That night, the lion does come back and drags off his wife's body and finishes consuming the majority of it. He does find, two days later, a few human remains and the dead lion, because the rat poison apparently did work and took the lion out. Now, the man was very reluctant to share this story for obvious reasons, but he said in his mind, uh, if the government did come and investigate, he could say, you know, look, I didn't shoot the lion. I don't own a gun. You have know no me. proof. Maybe the lion died of poison. Maybe he didn't. But there's no proof that I put the poison in the lion. Or the lion put the poison in him, so to say. But yeah, that the way wow. you worded that was a little weird, but I know what you mean. Wow. <laughs> that That's, yeah, I don't know that I would have the... The stomach for that. Yeah. I, I wanted to pluck that story out and use that as my headline rather than including it in the main. So what do you got, Bill? We've talked a lot about lions killing people. Let's flip the script a little bit. That's what I got. All right. So I have two articles here that I, I combined to make one story. They were both really short. First, from the newtelegraph.com, July 7th, 2023. A 53-year-old man kills lion with bare hands at Nguku Mountain by Cephas Hemen. And Modern Samson Kills Lion with Bare Hands from FreedomOnline.com. Wow. And again, I'm probably going to get these names wrong, but a lot of African words here that I don't, I'm not familiar with. 53-year-old. 53, Eric. 53. I'm. That's just a little younger than me. I'm not quite there, but I don't think I have the strength to do what this man did. 53-year-old Irver Udele from the Ajio clan reportedly killed a lion that attacked him with his bare hands in the Ngoku Mountains. Bare hands. Udaley's story has made him something of a modern-day Samson who, according to legend, also killed a lion using his bare hands. Uh, he was working on his farm located in the Ngoku Mountains where he was reportedly attacked by the now-deceased lion. He, in self-defense, fought back in what can best be described as a fierce battle to stop the lion from sinking its teeth into his chest. The fight lasted for about 10 minutes before he defeated the wild beast by grabbing it by the neck, throwing it to the ground, and then smashing it over the head with a large stone. Jeesh. Uh, he, he, this guy was more bad, badass than Sing. Yeah. So despite the fact that he was already seriously injured and bleeding from the lion's claws, he did all that. So he's already hurt. He's already been attacked, and he still manages to wrestle and then ultimately kill this lion. Talk about an ultimate adrenaline boost. Other farmers in the area heard the commotion. They rushed to the scene and were awestruck by what they found. Like, you know, they see Udele laying there, the beast is dead, and clearly no weapons. He's killed Skull it barehanded. Skull and crushed in with a rock yeah. laying nearby. So speaking with a reporter after this epic event, Udele said, I was working on my cassava farm at Ingoku Mountain, and suddenly I heard a sound like that of a lion roaring and advancing towards me. I was nervous. I summoned courage and confronted the lion as it was coming towards me, possibly to feast on me. It took about 10 minutes during the struggle before I killed it. Wow. Now, he sustained varying degrees of injuries, 
and was immediately rushed to the general hospital. And I'm going to say the name of the town and I'm going to laugh because at 46 years old, I am still a child inside <laughs> a dick po. <laughs> that sounds like a bad dad joke. Well, at the hospital, he received prompt treatment and he was listed as in stable condition at the time the article was written. So this dude, uh, again, uh, I, I don't have it in. Wow. And he's, you know, he's got a few years on me there. So, you know, and I did actually go in and look what, you know, like bear attacks and stuff. What are you supposed to do if a lion attacks? You know, some say stand your ground, make noise. Some say run, some say climb a tree. I don't really know what the answer would be for, for a lions. Lion. I don't think it's really defined, you know, for a Just bear, bend you gotta, over and kiss your butt goodbye. Well, yeah, for a bear, you, you make a lot of noise for certain other wild animals. You try to make yourself look bigger. Was it for, I, I've actually seen video like with a mountain lion, you look it right in the eye. And you don't break eye contact. And, yeah. if, and as long as you can see it, it's not really going to attack you. Sometimes if, you play dead with you, the bears and have stuff. Have you seen the video of the mountain lion? I think I've seen a video There like is a that. video online that's a hiker. I want to say he's in California. He's backing down a trail, which means. Yes, yes. Yeah. And this and that cat comes at him a couple of times. Yeah, like it comes like up runs and, and then stops. Yeah. Runs at him and stops. But yeah. He's like just constantly a, making that eye contact. With a lion, obviously, if you. If you're asleep, that's not good enough. Pardon my French, but I, I don't think no shits are given. So, going back to Mr. Ngoku's story here, you think you got what it takes? Would you wrestle a lion to the ground and, and beat it to death? I know the answer. Like I said, I've already alluded to that. I don't, I don't think I could. I don't know what I would do, to be quite honest. I don't think anyone would truly know until they found themselves in that situation. But, based upon... My injury to my hand, which is the closest thing I could put to that which near death. We talked about before. Yes. Table saw where I cut off several of my fingers. There was an instinctive part of me, the survival, that caveman notion or whatever that's like, I've got to go, I've got to try to do something. I would like to think I wouldn't roll over. I probably would not win, especially in my condition and my age, getting older, obviously, but I would put up. A hell of a fight. You want you want to say you'd give it hell? Yeah. Whether whether or not I you come out on top, I think I would. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I think I would fight for all I was worth. Would it I'm, make a difference? I'm almost certain that I would end up as lunch. Well, we hope that uh, you have enjoyed the tales from Africa and Tanzania as tonight's episode, the Man Eaters of Savo. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate it. Hey, real quick, call to action. I think Eric would agree. We'd like to grow this. Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Absolutely. If you could, if you're listening on Apple, if you would go and give us a review and, and rate us, uh, if you have some feedback, that's fine too. Uh, whatever, whatever platform you're listening, follow us, rate us, give us some reviews. That helps get some recognition and gets our name out there. We do have a Facebook page, Nightmares on the Lost Highway. You can easily find us if you want to communicate with us, if you want to share some uh, possibilities for future podcasts with us you know reach out we want to talk with you guys testing one two three all right that's obscene but okay that'll work boo well now it's super zoomed yeah there's like one letter carries across the entire screen oh you got what you asked for you bitch yeah let's let's turn it down just a little let's find a happy medium Blip, 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 blip. That's that's much like a strobe light right in the side of my face. Just there you go. Individual syllable needs to be five screen. Yes, I'd like to buy an E. <laughs>
Eric, you're making noise. Got all kinds of electronics Trying to record here, going dude. on. <laughs> want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, (laughs) using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much. <laughs>